Calvary, let's pray. Father, we truly thank you for this day that uh, you have given to us. We have come before you, and we have uh, prayed your word, and we have sung your word. And Father, my prayer now is, as we open your word, and we see your word, I pray that uh, your word would change our lives. Father, I pray that as we hear your word, I pray that it would convict us. I pray that it would shape us and mold us and change us. And I pray that as we hear your word today, I pray that we will leave here as changed people. Because I truly believe that's what your word does, is it changes people. It changes hearts. It changes lives. And in doing that, we can go out and help change this world. But it is all done through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I just pray now that as, as I open your word, I pray that where my words are incomplete or not clear, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be clear to the hearts and the ears that it touches. And we ask this all through your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning, Calvary. I have one clarification to make. In your bulletin, I am not a doctor. Uh, so... I hope that uh, whoever left that in there, I want to thank them because maybe it's an honorary doctorate, I don't know. But, uh, but anyhow, it's good to be here this morning and uh, it's good to come and share God's word with you. And I, uh, I first most want to thank Paul that he is a pastor that opens this pulpit for others to come and preach God's word. Uh, because it means a lot to me to be able to do that. But also I want to know that uh, it greatly pleases me that Calvary has on staff here men that are able to come and stand in this pulpit and share God's word as well. Uh, we have Charles, uh, we have Dan, there's Tommy and Randy and others that are able to come here and stand and preach this word as I am here today. But also, I would be amiss if I did not also let you know that we have a group of elders in this church that I'm pleased to serve alongside that are able to come and do the same. There's Sam, there's Dave, there's Jed, there's Tim, and there's Eric. They are just as capable to come and stand in this pulpit and share God's word with you as I am today. But again, I want to let you know that I'm thankful to be here, and I've looked forward to this for some time. But before we open and read our verses this morning, I want to do a quick review of the first half of chapter 19. But if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to chapter 19 of Acts, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 41. But first, I want to kind of do just a quick review to kind of bring a little continuity to this last half of chapter 19. When we look at Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul is in the heart of his third missionary journey as he comes to Ephesus. And Ephesus has, in all practicality, become his base of operations as he reaches out to the outlying provinces of Asia. And upon coming to Ephesus, Paul finds uh, some disciples of Apollos where he proposes a question to them, and that is, into what were you baptized? And they told him that they were baptized into the baptism of John, and he asked him, he said, have you not heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And their answer to him was, shockingly, no, we have not heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
So when Paul was talking with them, he basically told them that you now need to be baptized in the Spirit because it is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that John foretold of in the message that John the Baptist brought. And after this, they were baptized, and Paul laid hands on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as usual after this, Paul then goes to the synagogue, as he did in every city, and he spoke there boldly for about three months. But when the people of the synagogue basically were tired of Paul and the message that he was bringing, he moved his message to the hall of Tyrannus, where he taught there for approximately two years. So when we look at chapter 19, specifically verses 11 and 19, we see two effects of the gospel message. First, it tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were being used to heal the sick. And we're even told that those who became believers and had been practicing magic arts brought their books of magic and burned them as a testimony to change lives. But it's when we come to verse 20 that leads us directly into the, first half, the second half of chapter 19 where it tells us in verse 20 that God's word continued to increase and prevail mightily. So if we notice one thing about this gospel message is, is that the gospel was having an impact in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Paul had been in Ephesus for about two to three years, and it was becoming apparent that his ministry was having a significant influence, not only in Ephesus, but the surrounding area of Asia Minor. The gospel ministry of Paul was having such an effect that it was upsetting the status quo of the everyday life within the city of Ephesus. The gospel was not only changing lives, but it was changing the culture of the city. And what we have in our focus verses today is another specific effect of the gospel making an impact in Ephesus. So as we look at these focus verses, if you would, just follow along with me, and we're going to read verses 21 through 34 first. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. I want to stop right there for just a minute. You know, the one thing that I find amazing about Paul is he was always looking forward. He was looking for the next town that he could go to and share the gospel message. And here he specifically tells us that he was looking forward to going to Rome. And the thing that is amazing is, I don't know if you discussed this in your life groups, but when Paul gets to these towns, the gospel is already there. The gospel message has preceded Paul. And that tells me that the gospel message basically had set this part of the world on fire for the gospel message. Because even after Paul decided that he wanted to go to Rome, he also expressed in Romans his desire to go to Spain. So Paul was always looking outward. He was always looking for the next town to go to. So starting back in verse 23, And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded 
and turn away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know that they had come, come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. One of the main persons that we are introduced to in these verses is a gentleman by the name of Demetrius. He is not only the main character here, but he is also what we would call the antagonist within these verses. He is the one person within the city of Ephesus that took a stand against Paul and his gospel message. When Paul came to the city of Ephesus, he could see, just as he did in Athens, that the city was filled with idols. The primary influence in Ephesus was the goddess Artemis, or she is known in Latin, Diana. Diana was considered to be the fertility goddess, where temple prostitution was an important part of her worship. Her influence on Ephesus was quite evident. The temple was erected in her name about the time of Paul's journey to Ephesus and was labeled as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. By some estimations, it covered an area four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. These shrines that Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen were making were being sold that people could take these shrines and dedicate them at the temple or even take them home to worship. And this selling of idols at temples was not uncommon. This type of situation even went on at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem during the time that Jesus was alive. It was so, such a common practice that wherever the people were, it was an excellent place and time to sell your products and make money. And if we learned one thing during those times, it was that religion and commerce went hand in hand during those times. This selling and buying was going on so much at the Jewish temple that Jesus even addressed this issue in Mark chapter 11, where upon entering the temple, he began to turn over the tables of the money changers and those that were selling pigeons for sacrificing. On that day, it was Jesus' indignation that was on display, not Artemis. So there are five points that I want us to look at in these verses that we just read. And the first one is, Demetrius's indignation toward Paul. We're introduced to Demetrius in verse 24 and told that he is a silversmith who made silver shrines of the goddess Diana. And these shrines were being sold within the city of Ephesus. These shrines were probably being sold in close proximity to the temple as a source of income for Demetrius and his fellow tradesmen. Demetrius's anger was stirred up because his source of income was being greatly affected by this person named Paul. 
Next is Demetrius's indictment against Paul. What were the charges being brought against Paul? When we look at the charge that Demetrius was bringing against Paul, we are really able to see what brought about his anger. So what is the charge that Demetrius is accusing Paul of? In verse 26, it answers that question for us, and it says, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. The first point of the indictment is, is that Paul addresses, that it, against Paul, Demetrius addresses the scope of Paul's influence where the effect is felt not only in Ephesus, but also in all of Asia. The next part of the indictment is, was that it charged Paul with persuading and turning many people from worshiping idols. Paul's intent was not to close down the temple of Diana. His intent was to change hearts. His intent was to change the hearts of the people that he shared the gospel with. He did not go there to close down a temple. If the closing of the temple happened, that was just part of sharing the gospel, that was, but that was not his intent. And that's one thing that you and me need to understand when we share the gospel. It's not to close anything down, but the gospel is meant to share with individuals. And it's through individual sharing that we change people, we change hearts, and we change lives. And that, in turn, will change the culture of a city or a town. The next thing that we look at is, is Demetrius' trade or livelihood would no longer be held in high honor, and the Temple of Diana may even come to nothing. Demetrius was clearly concerned about his financial stability. He also knew if he could incorporate the religious aspect into his financial concern, he would gain even more support for his argument. But the main indictment against Paul by Demetrius is found in verse 26, where it says God, that Paul is saying, God made with hands are not God's. Paul is basically telling the Ephesians that this piece of silver, this piece of gold, or this piece of wood is no more than that. It's just silver or gold or wood. It's nothing more. He was telling them that their way of life, their religion, that they so depended on was not real. They were worshiping false gods. And you know, when I thought about that, I thought to myself, you know, I would probably be the same way. You know, somebody that would come in and tell me that the Christ that I worship is a false god, I might respond in the same way. But the thing about it is, and the truth of it is, is that Demetrius and probably most all of Ephesus was worshiping a false god. They were not worshiping the one true God. The next thing we'll look at is Demetrius' instigation of a riot. We're told in verse 25 that he gathered together these workmen of similar trades because the gospel message that he was proclaiming was not only going to affect Demetrius, but it would also affect them and their way of life. They too would lose money because of this gospel message. Verse 25, it says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Demetrius is the primary instigator of this situation, and all he has done is throw in some spiritual flavoring to his economic crisis. And what you have is an enraged crowd that eventually turns into a riot within the city of Ephesus. The fourth point is the impulse of the crowd. 
How did the crowd respond here? Because of the charge brought against Paul, Demetrius takes the opportunity to incite the crowd into an uproar. Verse 28, it says, When they heard that they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The city was filled with so much emotional drama at this time that it goes on to say that the city was filled with confusion. I can't imagine a city that's that large, and it was a large city, that the city had just basically been thrown in an uproar, and because of that, there was just so much confusion that was going on. And it was so filled with confusion and rage that they cried out the statement of greatest Diana of the Ephesians for two hours. For just two whole hours, you have the people of this city just walking around. Greatest Diana of the Ephesians. So much confusion was being stirred up by the crowds that Luke even goes on to tell us that most of them, most of them did not even know why they were gathered together. That tells me that a lot of people there didn't really care what was being said, that they were just there because they were going along with the crowd. And that's easy to do for some people. Those in the crowd were so emotionally charged with what was going on that they didn't even know why they had even gathered together. And the fifth point is the intervention of the town clerk. Verse 35 of Ephesians 19 says this, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said to them, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For you are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The town was in such a disarray that the town clerk has to get involved because he sees this whole situation is getting out of hand. And it was on the verge of getting out of hand so much, if he did not get involved, the lives of Gaius and Aristarchus and even Paul, their lives were in danger. But yet someone named the town clerk got involved here. Now those verses that we just read and I've just talked about, we have to ask the question, well, how do they apply to you and me? Because basically all these verses are, are what we would call a descriptive verse. They describe what happens. It's a narrative of something that happened within the city of Ephesus on a specific day. So how does that apply to you and me? And what is the, as we want to say, what is the descriptive application to you and me? How does that apply to you and me and how we can use it in our lives? Because what we have seen is that the gospel was having an impact within the city of Ephesus and the surrounding area of Asia. Negatively, it had stirred up a people within the city that if left uncontrolled, it probably would have led to the death of some people. But positively, 
The gospel was moving among the people of Ephesus so much that it was changing lives and so many individuals, which in turn was changing the culture of this whole city. And as Paul told us last week in his sermon, this changing that was going on was through a power. And that power that was being used here was the power of God's word through the power of his Holy Spirit that was changing. And we heard that power applied because, you know, we read last week and even in your life groups this morning that people were taking these claws that had the sweat of Paul on them and using these claws to heal people and to even exercise demons. There was no power in those claws. There was no power in Paul's sweat. The truth is the power was the divine power of God working through those things. And that was what was changing the culture here. It was the power of God. One of the primary results we see is that the gospel was being proclaimed. And it was being proclaimed boldly and with power. And the thing that we see here is whenever the gospel is being proclaimed boldly and with power, there will be opposition. You know, one of the things that I read in preparation for this and coming and sharing with you today is, what does it say about you and me, the fact that we proclaim the gospel, but we really see no opposition? Is it because there's no opposition to you and me because they see no power in our life because of the gospel message? Now, granted, I know that we live in southeast Alabama, and we're somewhat sheltered from the rest of the world and the things that go on. But the truth of the matter is, is there should be a proclamation of the gospel that is so powerful that it changes people. It changes a city. It changes a culture. But the thing is, it's no different than when Paul was preaching. It starts with you and me sharing the gospel through into, to individuals. And if we're not willing to do that, we will not see a change. So the question that we need to consider is, why was Paul in Ephesus? I think first he was in Ephesus because he had been commissioned by Jesus to go to the Gentiles. Second, the Holy Spirit directed him there. Third, he was fulfilling the great commission that we find in Matthew 28, 20, which we have all been called to fulfill. But he was there to share the gospel with people who were worshiping idols. And this was a great concern to Paul. If we go back two chapters to chapter 17, when Paul is in Athens, we see that Paul basically, as he's walking around the city, he is very troubled. And the word the trouble there is that he was agitated. And I think Paul, to some degree, was agitated and troubled when he came to Ephesus and saw all these idols. But the reason he was troubled is he was troubled because these people were not worshiping the one true God. Even though Demetrius was angry toward Paul and the effects of the gospel that it was having toward him and his livelihood, Demetrius was an idol worshiper. He either bowed the knee to Diana or maybe some other idol within the city. What we do know is that Demetrius was not a worshiper of the one true God. So when we look at false gods in Athens and in Ephesus, a question comes to mind, which I think applies to you and me today. And that is, what is your God? I wonder if I were to ask you today, do you worship idols? I think most people in this room would probably answer, no, I do not worship idols. 
The explanation that would be given would be somewhere along this line of thought. I don't worship an idol because an idol was something that was made of gold or silver or wood. It is something that is crafted by hand. There are people today that still worship idols. There are people that worship Buddha, or there are people that worship the Hindu god Brahma. But I think today we may consider ourselves more modern, enlightened, or more intelligent people. Idol worship was when they worshiped carved or engraved images made of wood, silver, or gold. Besides, didn't Paul himself say that gods made with hands are not gods? You would be correct to answer that way. Isaiah 44 says, and it's speaking about man, he says man takes half, he's talking about wood here, he takes half of it and he burns it in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Psalms 115 says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So these verses clearly lay out to you and me what an idol is. It is something that has been created physically with our own hands. The problem for you and me is today we do not spend our time making idols with our hands. We do not get a piece of wood or silver or gold and we fashion it or shape it into an idol and fall down and worship it. We don't even spend our time buying trinkets that we can take home with us and worship. You know, I think if, when it comes to something man-made, I think the closest thing I've ever had to an idol, and I'm showing my age here when I say this, when I was growing up in an elementary school, we had what was called a rabbit's foot. And you carry that rabbit's foot around with you because it would bring you good luck. Sad to say I had a rabbit's foot. But I can't say whatever luck it really brought me. So where do idols come from? The question for you and me in this room today is, what is an idol for you and me today? If you had to define what an idol was, how would you define it? Is it something you put in the place of God or something that you love more than God? Is an idol that one thing in life, if you lost it, anything in your life, if you lost it, if it was taken away from you, would cause you to lose the will to live any longer? You would lose all value, all significance, all self-worth, all security in your life would be gone if this one thing was taken away from you. This could be career, it could be money, it could be power, it could be sex, it could be family, it could be relationships, achievement, political causes, it could be sports, it could be comfort. And I think the biggest idol of all that we struggle with today is it could be yourself. 
these things in and of themselves are not bad things, but they can become bad things because of the position and place we give them in our lives. If we give them that ultimate position in our life, that's when they can become an idol. I think if we took the time to examine our own lives in the 21st century, we would have to be honest with ourselves and say that the type of idols that we worship has changed, but the root and basic cause of idols has not changed. So what is the basic and root cause of idols today? St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, explains that sin in its truest form is idolatry, and it's the result of a disordered love. When it comes to sin, we think mostly of sinful behavior in the form of doing bad things or bad actions. When Augustine, he went to the centrality of man's sin, and that is man's sinful heart. That sinful heart brings about a disordered love or loving things in the wrong order. In the context of idolatry, this loving something more than we love God, then that ultimate love can be given to all things, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus addressed this issue of the sinful heart in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he clearly states that such things as anger, lust, revenge, and hating your enemies come from a sinful heart. You have to go to the basic root cause of where things start. All sin originates in the heart of the sinner. Matthew chapter 7 says, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That is the main issue with idolatry and how we need to view it. If we took time to examine our hearts, we can clearly see that the sin of idolatry emanates from the heart. Idols first and foremost captivate the heart. And that's where it starts. If something can captivate your heart, it captivates the center of your being almost. If it can just grab a hold of your heart through your emotions and through your feelings, that's where it will start. Ezekiel 14 verse 3 says... Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Romans 1, 24 and 25 says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. I want to introduce you to a person now by the name of David Foster Wallace. Uh, Justin, we got his picture. Maybe not. Uh, if you've been a part of my class, my life group class over the years, you've been introduced to a gentleman by the name of David Foster Wallace. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. David Foster Wallace was an American author and writer. And back in 2005, David gave an address to the College of Kenyon where his uh, commencement speech was entitled, 
this is water. And even though David Foster Wallace was an agnostic, or even some people said he was atheist, the speech that he gave on that day was, gave so much insight to the human heart and how it truly functions. I've been amazed by that speech over the years. I'm going to read an excerpt of this speech to you because I think God has placed within the heart of man a desire and a need to worship. Scripture tells us in Genesis 1.26 that we were created in the image of God. And in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, we are told that God has put eternity within the heart of man. However, after the fall in the Garden of Eden, that, that desire to worship God was deeply affected, and man turned his affections elsewhere. But listen to the part of this speech that David gave to this graduating class. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the weakened mother goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If it's truth, when you worship, if you worship your own body, and beauty and sexual allurement, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. If you worship intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And he says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are default settings. They're the kind of worship that you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. I remember the first time that I heard this speech, I sat there almost dumbfounded because here you had an agnostic person basically telling us what the human heart was like is that we will worship something. We will be drawn to something to worship. I've always thought of David Foster Wallace as someone who was similar to the scribe that approached Jesus on that day when he asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of all? Jesus ended this dialogue with a scribe, and remember he told him, he says, you are not that far from the kingdom of God. I believe that David Foster Wallace was not that far from the kingdom of God, but for whatever reason, he did not have enough of the gospel message to finally cross over and grab hold of that gospel message. 
How many people do we know that are this far from the kingdom of God? And it may take you and me sharing the gospel message with them to bring them just that one step closer that will bring them to faith. I believe that David Foster Wallace was not far, but he didn't quite make it. After his speech in 2005, in 2008, just three short years later, David hung himself in his home. And I can't help but think if somebody, somebody had just taken one minute to share with him the gospel message. The thing that you and me need to understand here is that whatever God David Foster Wallace was worshiping that day, it ate him alive. And that's the thing that I want you guys to understand when it comes to idols in your life. They will eat you alive. I know that from experience. They will eat you alive. The next question is, who is your God? A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church today is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man, about any woman, is not what at any given time he may say or do, but it is what in his deep heart conceives God to be like. I wonder what the people of Ephesus in their deepest heart of hearts thought when they were looking at their idols, their trinkets, their Diana. What were they thinking in their heart that they think that this is my God? A God that does not speak, a God that does not see, a God that does not hear, a God that does not walk, smell, or taste, but yet they would worship that kind of God. Do you and I bow before a God that we can carry around in our pockets? When you consider the question, who is your God, many things can come to our minds when we take time to consider the very important question proposed by A.W. Tozer. Who God is to you and me can be defined in so many ways, and there are many factors that go into how we view God either wrongly or rightly. We define God by and through our life experiences, where we're born, our family life, our relationships, our church, our fears, and our expectations. Do we define God by the thoughts that our mind may conjure up within us about who we think God is? Do we define God who is and who we want God to be. We may want a God that will grant us our every wish, or a God who does as we say, a God that we want to control and have at our beck and call, or a God that is only merciful and loving, but never righteous and holy. Do we want a God that is created in our image? Tozer goes on to say that we have a tendency to move toward our mental image of God, However you may try to define God or whoever you think God is, 
the ways in that I just mentioned will always fail us at our greatest point of need. In Psalms 120, the psalmist says when he was speaking to the children of Israel, you thought that I was one like yourself. God is not as we are. God is not defined by you and me. He is separate from you and me. The greatest way that we can know who God is is by knowing Him through His revealed Word. And there is no other way. He is not a God that we can conjure up in our thoughts, in our thinking, in our heart, in our emotions. God is defined by His Word. And when I say that, I'm going to say this, is He is also defined in the Old Testament just as well as He is defined in the New Testament. You cannot take one God and separate Him from the other. There are some that are trying to do that today in the church. But the God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. They are one and the same. So who is your God? Is your God the God that is defined by Scripture, or is he a man-made God that you have created out of the good things that God has given? Often in life, we try to overcomplicate things when we don't have to. God's Word is clear. Exodus 20, verse 3 and 5, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. For the Lord your God, I am a what? I am a jealous God. And Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And these words that I command you today shall be where they shall be on your heart. When you read the first commandment, you can easily see that there is no room for divided affections. Jesus himself said that you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You know, over the years, our pastor has introduced us to some of the Puritan writers, and one of them was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Chalmers. He was a Scottish minister, but he addressed this issue of idols in our lives in one of his sermons, and it was entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. His sermon is centered around the verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the world is not in him. You know, when Paul first mentioned this expulsive power of new affection, I said, well, let me go and find out about it. And it's hard to read because it's written in what I call Old English. But if you look beneath that, if you look at what he is trying to get us to see, is that there is an expulsive power of a new affection that has to take place in mind in your life if we're going to love God the way that we should. The key to turning away from the allurements of this world that can become idols in our lives is to feel that desire in our heart, that emptiness in our heart, with a new and greater affection. You know, I wish I could ask you, because, you know, one of the things I do when I teach in my life group class, I'm constantly asking them questions because I'm trying to get people to pull things out of them to see where they really are. And this is the questions I will ask you. What is the greatest affection in your life? What is the greatest passion of your life?
What is the greatest love of your life? The new and greater affection that is being spoke of begins in our hearts. And this is where the battleground starts. God has designed you and me for so much more than the temporal pursuits of this world. The truth is we will never find true satisfaction through things or people. Pursuing our ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world is, as one author said, it's like chasing the wind. Once we have exhausted all of our energies, seeking our greatest passions and our greatest love through the things of this world, we will be left empty-handed and sorely disappointed. And even in some cases, if the affection of our heart captivates us too much, it will destroy us. Because one of the things that Thomas Chalmers was trying to get you and me to understand is if we have desires and passions in our heart and our life that take us away from those things that we should be given to God, just simply walking away from them is not going to be enough. Because if we try to just walk away from those desires and passions that are pulling us away from God, the things that we should be given to God, the trouble is there's going to be another desire or passion out there waiting for you and me just to gravitate toward. Because if there's one thing this world does to you and me, it wants to draw us in and allure us in so that we can give those things of this world our greatest desire and affection. And Thomas Chalmers is telling you it's not going to work. What he's telling you and me is we've got to take that void that's in our heart, in our life, that's filled with these other desires and passions, and we've got to fill it with a new and greater affection. And guess what that affection is? It is a love and desire to love Christ more than we love anything else in this world. There is within us a hunger there is within us a desire that only God can satisfy. There is a thirst within you and me that only God can quench. Psalms 107 verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. In his fictional work, The Silver Chair, by C.S. Lewis, a young girl by the name of Jill has entered a strange and wooded area in the land of Narnia with her friend Eustace. Some of you have probably read this. But due to poor judgment, she finds herself alone and separated from Eustace. And during that time that she is alone, she becomes very thirsty and she is walking around in search of water. And she finds a stream, but she stops dead in her tracks because in front of her on the other side of that stream is a lion. She's thinking to herself, if I run away, it will be after me in a moment. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyone shouldn't cut. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of this lion. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if she could only be sure that she would get a mouthful of water before the lion ate her. But listen to what the lion said to her. If you're thirsty, you may drink. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? Jill said, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. 
Jill says, may I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I drink? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic, causing her to thirst more. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come and drink, said Jill. The lion said, I make no promises. The lion said, excuse me, Jill said, do you eat little girls? The lion said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And Jill said, I dare not come and drink. And the lion said, then you will die of thirst. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And you know what the lion said to her? There is no other stream. There is no other stream. And that is my plea to you today. There is no other stream but Christ that will fill your hearts with that deepest longing that you have. And you know, the thing is, this same situation was addressed in John chapter 4 when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. Listen to what he said. He said, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You know, the amazing thing about that is when you taste of that water, it says that you will never thirst again. But I don't know if you're like me, but if you have ever tasted that water and you know what that water tastes like, guess what? You want more of that water. You've got to have more of that water because you know it's the only water that will satisfy you. So my question to you today is, what now? What now? What will you do with these things that you have heard? And I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship band to come on forward because they need a few minutes to, to gather their things. But let me ask you a question. Christian, and I would assume most in here are Christians today, do you thirst? Do you hunger? Do you desire something that is far greater than this world can ever fulfill? I've been there. I've been there. I will look for gratification. I will look for satisfaction in the things that this world would offer. And here's the thing. And maybe most of you can understand this. When I was growing up, I was not a bad person. I was not a bad person. But for some reason, the things of this world captivated me. It captivated me. And all it is is it kept me from giving my true allegiance to the one that it was really due, and that is Jesus Christ. Maybe you are not thirsty. Maybe you are not things thir hungry for the things of God. But you know what Scripture says? You have not because you ask not. Maybe you're not hungry. Maybe you're not thirsty because you have not asked God to make you hungry and thirsty. 
Some of those things I can't really explain, but the best way I can put it to you is I'm a bike rider. I do road biking. And after I've put in like 40 miles riding a bike, one of the things that I so crave in my life when I get off that bike is I want water. It's no different from you and me and our relationship with Christ. Do you thirst for Him that much? Do you desire to have Him that much? Maybe you don't because you have not asked Him to. It's true that God will not force Himself on anybody, but I think He wants you and me to come to Him and say, please give me that water that will satisfy my deepest hunger. As we come to our time of response, I want to say this. Is Christ first in your life? Is He the one thing in your life that you desire so much that you cannot live without Him? You cannot live without Christ. That's my question to you today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, I can only speak from my own heart. And I can say that I'm truly thankful that on a certain day that I'm quite aware of over 10 years ago, I asked you to give me a hunger and thirst for you. And you did it. Father, my prayer today is if there are believers here today that struggle not so much with idols made with hands, but they struggle with desires and affections of this world that cannot satisfy, I pray that we will bring those desires and affections to you today and lay them at the foot of the cross and look to you as the greatest desire and the greatest new affection in our hearts. Because I truly believe that we can be saved, but yet our priorities are not right. We have a disordered love. We love things in the wrong way. And it's, as I said earlier, it's not that it's complicated, but the question is, do we truly love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That first and great commandment is so simple. And it's the simple question, do we love God? Do we love Him with everything that we have? Do we love Him with everything that we are? That is the question before us today. And Father, if there are any here today that do not know You as their Lord and Savior of their life, I pray that today will be the day that they will come and taste of that water, that living water that can truly change a heart and change a life for you. For I ask all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. You know, there's a phrase in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, and I've always been captivated by it. The first part of that verse says, When Christ, who is your life? And I think for so many years, Christ was a part of my life. He was over here in a certain segment of my life. But that's not what it says. It says, when Christ, who is your life? Christ is to be our life. He's to be our all in all. He's not to be just a part of our life. 
You know, I asked a question several years ago when we were addressing some of the younger men in a young men leadership conference at this church. And the question was, and I'll ask it to you today and we'll close. When you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing you think of? Do you think about the busyness of your day ahead? Do you think about probably the hecticness of your day ahead? All the things you're going to have to deal with today? Well, I'm here to tell you there's a better way. Is when you open your eyes each and every morning, the first thing that you need to give thought to, the first thing that you need to give your heart to is to give it to Christ. Because I so believe in a God that is so sovereign and providential that it is a God that has kept me through the night and let me have a good night's rest. He kept my heart beating through the night and he even gave me breath through the, through the night and he has awakened me to see another day. That is the God that can fulfill every desire of your heart. So I invite you to come. If you've got any decision to make, if not, this altar is open for you to come and pray. But I invite you to come.